0: Do remain standing and turning your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, somewhat towards the middle of the, the Bible. It's right after Ezra, right before Esther. I'll be reading Nehemiah chapter 1. Before I read God's word, let us go again to God humbly in prayer. Father, will you please help us to understand? This inspired, authoritative text, your word, where we see truth and grace, a divine speech for us today. In Christ we pray. Amen. Nehemiah chapter one. Hear now the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it came, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. When you ask a soon-to-be-married couple about, say, their their five-year plan, usually buying a home is on that list. It's it's, it's in that plan, isn't it? It's on the, the short list of what to do. First-time homeowners posting on social media is today as common as gender-reveal parties. The couple will call upon all onlookers to consider the new house and to celebrate with them. We bought a home, they say. And I'm sure that two years ago, when we bought our home for the first time, we did the same as well. Having a home to call your own is a manifold blessing from God. You have a place of security, of safety, of refuge, relaxation. You have opportunities to tailor-make it for just what you want. All those backyard projects, all that remodeling, all the hospitality, gardening, you can have chickens, and all the rest. That's why our heartstrings are tugged when we watch that cheesy movie, Homeless for the Holidays, or some version of it. We, if you haven't seen it, it really doesn't matter. If you've seen one Hallmark movie, you've seen all of them. But if you've seen it, you, you wonder, really, for Christmas, this family loses everything, even their beloved home. As we reflected last week during ABF, Israel rejoiced through Psalm 147 because of the rebuilding of the temple, because they would return to the land that was once given them by their Redeemer. Verse 2 of that psalm says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. This is what the book of Nehemiah is all about. The rebuilding of the temple walls and city gates and the regathering of the people of God. Why? For the worship of God, and for the whole life obedience to the Redeemer, to their God. Now we don't have time to explore every bit of Nehemiah. There's a lot in these 13 chapters. But don't fear. In February of 2024, in the evening, I will begin a series through Nehemiah. So here we have a big picture through all of Nehemiah. As we pull out some snapshots from this photo album of God's story of redemption through Nehemiah, we will see how they picture for us the coming Messiah, his mission, and his people. The message this morning through Nehemiah is zeal for the Father's house consumed the coming Christ. The message of Nehemiah is that God rebuilds his people and the place for his people, In 445 BC, the Persian king Artaxerxes allows his trusted official, Nehemiah, to visit Jerusalem. And with Nehemiah will come then the third wave of returning exiles. Nehemiah had heard a sad report from one of his brothers down in Judah. And the report was this, there is a remnant, but the remnant is not properly safeguarded. The wall of Jerusalem remains broken down. And the gates of the city have been destroyed by fire. You can imagine the sad and dangerous situation that Israel has found herself in, can't you? Just consider your own home, consider your own apartment. Would any of us today feel comfortable going to bed at night with all the doors open? With the garage door open? Of course not. The people of God desire to worship their God. In his holy temple. And they need a fortress. They need a refuge in which they can live securely and joyfully. Nehemiah then weeps in prayer for his people. He weeps because of the destruction of the heavenly city that is on earth. And in his prayer, he doesn't excuse his people's sins, but instead confesses them to their God. He includes himself in that, even though he wasn't there at the time. He says, My father. And I have sinned. I am part of this people that has sinned against God. And then he pleads with the Persian king, asking Artaxerxes to send him to Judah for a time. And by grace, the king of heaven and earth allows this earthly king to give Nehemiah a brief leave of absence, along with materials necessary for rebuilding city walls. And when Nehemiah comes on the scene to inspect Jerusalem, to inspect the city walls, to inspect inspect the land, what does he see? He sees a place of ruins. He sees a place with embers of the fire of destruction. He sees a place of sorrow. A crestfallen people, their heads bowed in, in pain, Looking at their own city, looking at the walls that have been broken down, wondering if there would if there ever will be a time for that to be rebuilt. Like Gimli, who saw his beloved Khazadum, and could only lament the death of King Balin, and bemoan the fate of the mines of Moria. Yet he remained hopeful for it to be rebuilt one day. Surely we see how Nehemiah's life at this point pictures the life of the coming Christ. The eternally begotten of the Father looks upon the people and upon this this place, looks upon not only Jerusalem, but the whole earth. And the Son says to the Father, Send me, Father. Let me go down there. The Son of God, who is, of course, more trustworthy than Nehemiah was to his king. He intercedes for the people, the people enslaved to their own sin, the people who have the light of their eyes filled with darkness. He inspects the place, he inspects the people, and he willingly offers himself to come down to earth. The eternal Son of God honors his Father and gives this world a fighting grace by humbling himself as a servant, coming down with salvation in his bones, with his blood. He comes to a broken world, to a sinful world, one that needed true building, rebuilding. And this leads us then to our next parallel between Nehemiah and the Messiah. Thankfully, Nehemiah was able to influence a band of brothers to join him in building. They didn't have to be persuaded, although we'll see there was opposition, opposition. It didn't take much convincing for them to see this was a worthwhile project. They all wanted the same thing. They all wanted the the temple. They all wanted the walls to cover, to provide refuge for the people. Slowly but surely then, the many men come together and they build. They build a lot of things, as you would see in Nehemiah. They build the sheep gate. They rebuild the fish gate, the gate of Yashana, the, the broad wall, the valley gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate. Perhaps you didn't know there were so many gates, and I didn't say them all. A lot of gates, a lot of land, in need of a lot of protection. The temple and its walls were vast, and such godly labor called for all hands on deck. And eventually, though not without opposition, the wall was finished. And now, when the Messiah tabernacled among his people, he began to build. As we remember from Reverend Godwin's Thanksgiving sermon, the Christ's construction was not of an earthly temple per se, but of a heavenly one, a truly spiritual home. Now, there are many fine builders in this world, some of whom have built even some of this. What I'm preaching from was built by our own. And we're thankful for their work. And perhaps the children know of the fine construction work that Bob the Builder does. Bob the Builder, we ask, can he fix it? And we're told, yes, yes he can. He can fix pretty much anything. And some are shaking their heads no. (laughs) But as much as Bob the Builder can build, this spiritual house is beyond his abilities. Constructing the heavenly abode of God is beyond not just his abilities, he's a fake one anyways, but beyond all of our abilities. We do not build a house. We are not that good. Nehemiah needed a band of brothers to build the wall, to build those gates, to build the city itself. But Jesus, the Messiah, did not need a band of brothers to join with him building the spiritual house. All of the supposed builders, all those religious authorities, anyone who would compete for building this spiritual house, didn't have it in them to pick up a single stone on which the church of Christ would be built. The stone, the chief stone, the cornerstone on which the house would be built is Christ himself, who is a stumbling block to all who reject him, but is a foundation and a comfort for all who take refuge in him. And in a beautiful turn in the story of redemption, all of these supposed builders would actually become living stones, as God's people are called, if they find refuge in Christ. We, we don't build. We are not that cornerstone. It isn't our lives that form the foundation for the church We become the church, we become those living stones, that spiritual house of God because of what Christ has done. And the only way for this new Jerusalem to be built is for the Messiah himself to tabernacle among us and for his spirit to indwell us by his grace. And this grace is only possible if this man, this God-man comes to earth to give his earthly tent for us. The one born in a stall because there was no room in the inn, now to build us heaven and earth. The one who had no home to lie down in at night, now to give us endless days in his house. We sing joy, joy, joy. And as I said a moment ago, the band of brothers didn't really have to be persuaded. Nevertheless, they needed support. They need a support because of the growing opposition, because of the growing hostility. No sooner does the work begin than arises a contradictory spirit against Nehemiah, against this man and his ministry of rebuilding. He comes on the scene, and so does contradiction, so does opposition, so does hostility. We see that in several people, Sanballat, Tobiah the Ammonite, and other men mock Nehemiah. This was the first wave of opposition that came against Nehemiah. There was godless jeering at their work. There was a despising of the Jews and of their labor. But seeing the Lord's skillful hand to direct these men's hands, the naysayers upped the animosity and began to conspire against Nehemiah and his devoted followers. They tried to arrange a meeting getting Nehemiah in a room where they could corner him and then kill him. But Nehemiah was on to them. They persisted, even said false things. False things like Nehemiah was leading a rebellion, or that the people have put up a rival king in Jerusalem. But Nehemiah's holy courage remained firm. Sanballat and Tobiah even sent a man to prophesy to Nehemiah which we find out is a false prophecy. But the prophecy was pleading with him to hide himself in the temple. Get yourself in the temple because that very night, Nehemiah, they're coming to kill you. That's the only place of safety. Go there. The goal, of course, was to lie in wait, to shed innocent blood in the temple. But Nehemiah, confident in the Lord, didn't fall for that trap, and God strengthened him, carried him through his ministry. Nehemiah faced great opposition. And as the story of the incarnation is told, it must be told with the opposition that the Messiah, that Jesus the Christ, faced. No sooner does the Messiah come to earth than does Herod come to kill. Satan led King Herod to seek all of the male babies born under the age of two to seek the Messiah, to devour the Messiah. And as we know the story, by God's direction, his only begotten son fled the evil clutches, fled the, the fangs of that ancient serpent, Satan. As the incarnate son of God walks the earth, building his church, enemies would come out. And most ironically, these enemies would come primarily from the religious leadership. The religious authorities, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're all coming Against the Messiah. All the ones who should be telling the people that the Messiah has come are now coming against the Messiah. Again, to devour the God-man. They challenged his own identity. Surely you cannot be God. They challenged his teaching. Oh, they acknowledged that he spoke with great authority. But they did not want that authority to expose their own sin. They didn't want that authority to knock them down. A few notches. They opposed him. They opposed his, his own love for the law. Satan tempted the son with false promises of greatness if he just avoided the cross. If he just bowed down and worshiped Satan, the son would have it all. And when all this proved futile to Satan and to his religious underlings they all looked upon the messiah they marvelled at his ugly form on the cross and they mocked him and although the messiah was not urged to flee to the temple for refuge he was actually accused of one day destroying it destroying it unjustly when he was talking really about his own body the son's ministry was fraught with affliction from his birth until his death. He was hotly opposed. And one of the beauties of Nehemiah's ministry, of the Messiah's ministry, is, is this, the compassion that each man shared. Despite all of the opposition, they both did not turn inward, nor did they fear for their own lives. In the middle of the book of Nehemiah is a note of Nehemiah's ample generosity to the poor. Nehemiah helped the people in very useful, tangible ways. He helped them to procure grain because all their vineyards and their grain fields have been stolen. Some of the people had to give up their own children to work as slaves so that their families could get a little grain, so their families could live. The high officials and the nobles were exacting interest on the oppressed, taking advantage of the poor. And so Nehemiah and his men were giving money and grain to those who needed it. And thankfully, Nehemiah was able to get the nobles and officials to back off eventually. And Nehemiah didn't operate like the typical governor, taxing the people heavily, laying more and more financial burdens on an already poor people. Instead, we see He graciously, generously, out of his own pocket, each day he prepares rich provisions for 150 men, an ox, six choice sheep, birds, and every 10 days, wine in abundance. And so with threats upon his life, with him and his men building the wall with swords in hand, Nehemiah Nehemiah remains mindful of the more oppressed, of the humble, of the ones in need of real help. And I trust that we can see this wonderful display of generosity and how it pictures the heart of Christ, the actions of Christ. The Messiah was born to a home of humble means. He was born in a manger. When he wasn't even two months old, Joseph and Mary brought him to the temple and offered a sacrifice there that was fit for the occasion and according to their financial means. Two turtle doves. They didn't have a lot. And that was the prescription for those who didn't have a lot. He who was rich beyond all splendor became poor. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And rich we are indeed. We have everything that we need. And beyond that, we have all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Our Father has given us in Christ everything. In fact, He says that we will even inherit this earth. We get heaven and earth. Most, most importantly, we have Christ. Christ, Jesus, God become flesh, him we have, and he will never leave us, nor forsake us. The incarnate Son of God would tell a parable of of his generous heart, the parable of the great banquet. When the Son invited people to come and feast with him, he invited the poor, he invited the crippled, he invited the lame, he invited the blind. Why? Why? They're not worth anything. Exactly. <laughs> to society, they weren't worth anything. He invited them because they are in a position like all of us truly are. They cannot repay. They need assistance actually getting to the banquet. If They can't walk if they can't see. And who of us, on his own, is any better than they are? How can we, who were spiritually crippled and lame, even walk unless he lifts us up? Unless he moves our feet, moves our legs. How can we, who were blind, see his beautiful light? Unless he shines his beautiful countenance upon us brightly. Unless he lightens our path for salvation. Yes, Nehemiah cared for the poor and we were thankful to God for Nehemiah's ministry. He gave of his own means for their good. But this generosity cannot compare to the warmth of compassion that Jesus Christ has generally generously shown us and given us. For the Son of God came compelled by his own compassion to save us who are poor in spirit. He didn't look at us and say, wow, these people are really savable. They look really good. I have to have these people. Look how attractive they are. Look how much they know. Look how wise they are. Look how well they get along with each other. Look at the cities they build. They are quite a people. No, God says to Israel, to to us, I chose you not because you were the greatest of people. You weren't. You were insignificant. God chose us because of God's love, because of his compassion, not because of our loveliness. But we're thankful, are we not, that he he loves us and he continues to work in us, that we might actually bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That we might actually be a devoted people, people devoted to God and and godliness and holiness, that which is commendable. And we look a little bit more like Jesus with each day as His Spirit is working in us. Which is the second to last point is that of consecration. What do Nehemiah and the Messiah do? In chapters 8 through 13, Nehemiah consecrates the people of God. He sets them apart. He says, you guys need to look different. You need to look different from how you were looking. There's a reason you were in exile. It wasn't just chance that brought you in exile. It wasn't just chance that that brought the Assyrians upon you, that brought the Babylonians upon you. It was your own sin that generation after generation I would call upon you to repent, and you did not hear that call. And so I delivered on the promise that you would be exiled. And now when I'm regathering you, the Lord is saying, don't be like that people that you once were, but be people devoted to me. Be consecrated. Be set apart. And this ministry of consecration, we can see in several ways through Nehemiah. Very briefly, we see the law. In chapters 8 and 13, Nehemiah provides a place for Ezra to read God's law to God's people. In chapter 8, the law of Moses was explained very clearly, very powerfully, and it was very publicly, amen. In chapter 13, before Nehemiah's time is up, Nehemiah institutes some final legal reforms. The temple chambers were cleansed. Tithes were given. Sabbath laws were instituted. The bad priests were driven out. Marital sanctity was restored. Nehemiah put the law to good use to the people. The people of God are an obedient people. They love the law of the Lord, as the psalmist tells us. Nehemiah continued to consecrate the people by God's grace with Sabbath and with the meals in chapter 8. The people didn't observe the Sabbath in, in their exile. How could they have? There wasn't any clemency for, for the people. Well, you want a day off. Go ahead, take it. It wasn't that. And even if there was that, we have seen in the Old Testament that time and again, these people did not obey the law of God. They didn't set apart as holy the Lord's day. But Nehemiah knew that the Sabbath day was to be marked as holy and moreover, his ministry restored the festivals. There are so many beautiful festivals in the Old Testament that, that were used to commemorate different redemptive acts of God, how he provided for the people. And these festivals were cast aside as well. But by, through Nehemiah, they are restored, and they even celebrated the Feast of Booths, which is a reminder of God's provision for his people even while they were in these mini-tabernacles, these mini-tents, In exile. God was still with them, caring for them, even when they thought that he wasn't. Even when they were under his disciplining hand. He was disciplining them because he loved them. That's what Hebrews says, isn't it? That God, the Father, chastens those whom he loves. Nehemiah also, through consecrating the people, he restores leadership. In chapters 11 and 12, an important reform was having godly leaders. Nehemiah, knowing that he would be gone soon, put godly men in place. He oversaw the appointment of tribal chiefs, priests, gatekeepers, and Levites. He did all of this to ensure that the people and the place would be well taken care of when he returned. So he gives the law back to the people. He gives the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, meals leaders back to the people. He sets them up for godliness. And we have certainly seen the incarnate Son of God in action in these ways, haven't we? As for the law, baby Jesus was not born apart from the law. He was born under the law. Why? To redeem us who are under the law. That's what Galatians 4 says. He was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us under the law. Or consider the mature Messiah, the grown-up God-man. On the Sermon on the Mount, he proclaimed that he came not to cast aside the law, but he came to fulfill the law at every point. Because God's righteous standard remains perfection. He does not grade on a curve. And he gives the law to his people to show them that he has kept every bit of it. But he has also given the law to his people as a rule of life for us. He obeyed all the law for us, that we might have His righteousness, that we might see life in Him, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, that we would follow Him. And the Son has given us a Sabbath. He has given us a meal. True Sabbath rest can only be found in Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory has come down, he has humbled himself, and he has given us a meal. He has given us the Lord's Supper. He has given us spiritual exiles, a meal that we might be brought to our heavenly home. And in the time between his first and second comings, he has given us ministers, he has given us leaders. The son who ascended first descended, and he set up his church on earth. And when he ascended, he gave his church spirit-anointed officers to rule and to serve Christ. The Son of God made earth properly supplied as we await his second coming. He has consecrated a people. And finally, an imperfect people ought to be a confessing people. Nehemiah, a godly leader of the people for a season, led the way. As we saw in chapter 1, from the very beginning, before even coming to Jerusalem, he confesses his people's waywardness. He knows that the position that the Israelites found themselves in was because of Israel, because what Israel had done, not because God was a mean and nasty God. But he's faithful. He's faithful to discipline those whom he loves. He's faithful to his word. In chapter 9, in the middle of Nehemiah's work, he leads the people to confess their sins. And in chapter 13, in the end, he was well aware of their ongoing daily need to confess their sins. the very end of Nehemiah, he recognizes that the people haven't fully arrived. I trust that you have recognized that about yourself. If you've been a saint for 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, I trust that you are thankful to God that he has been working mightily in your life, but at the same time, you know there is still much work to be done. Which means we are to confess. That's why every Lord's Day, all of us are confessing our sins. It's a prayer of confession of sin. Because we remain sinners, not exclusively sinners, We are sinners turned saints. But we are at the same time sinner and righteous. And surely the Messiah takes on that role of interceding on behalf of his people. From the start of his life, he was baptized for sinners to fulfill all righteousness, he says. In the middle of his ministry, he confronted people in their sins, and he forgave people in their sins. People marvel at that. Yes, he can do these miracles, but only God can forgive sins. Yes, that should give you a clue as to the identity of this person. He isn't some mere man. Yes, he is man, but he is the God man. He is the Messiah. He is the one who's come to ransom captive Israel. And in the end, on the cross, he intercedes for us sinners now turned saints, and he dies on the cross for us. He dealt a death blow to our sin by performing the function that Nehemiah had for his king. Notice the very end of Nehemiah chapter 1. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. He makes sure, Nehemiah's function was to make sure that the king's drink wouldn't be full of poison and wouldn't kill the king. So if anyone was going to die, it wouldn't be the king, it would be Nehemiah. He would take on that role of substitution, of protection to the king. He knew that every drink he would drink could be his last one. It could be because it might have been intended for the king. And he willingly took on that role. And what did the incarnate Son of God do? He took his father's cup of wrath so that you and I wouldn't be killed, that we wouldn't die, but that we would have life eternal in his name. What beautiful grace from the life, ministry, and death of the eternally begotten God. No wonder we are called to bow down and worship the newborn king. Let's pray. Our God of redemption, we thank you so very much for seeing through the life and ministry of Nehemiah pictures of the Messiah of Jesus Christ, who has come to a people in darkness to give them light, who has come to a people in sin and to give them eternal life, who has come to a people in need of great spirit-wrought transformation and has even now given us his spirit. We depend upon this spirit even now. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in us that we would appreciate all the more as each day goes by the saving work of the incarnate Son of God. In his name we pray. Amen.